uh, there's an implication from the text that needs to be addressed beyond what's here, and this happens to be one of those. So last week, uh, we were grace, 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 and, uh, and so this week, um, I asked for, um, for you guys to come in, and uh, there we go, I asked for you guys to come in and give me words or uh, concepts or ideas that you would associate with um, someone that is a Christian. And so, um, if you can't see those, I'll read them for you. And uh, so we have things like blessed, praise, hope, friendly, fruitful, peace, grace, joy, integrity, trust, forgiveness, suffering, love, chosen, faith, blessings, honesty, and kind. Now, those are all good descriptors of maybe the character of somebody that you would say is Christian, but I noticed nobody put up here law. Nobody said, there's a set of rules. There's some right and wrong that we have to abide by, and therefore, uh, you need to have law up there. And the question this morning is not, can we come up with a nice, like, good things to talk about that uh, would describe somebody um, that is Christian? The question I have for you is, what do you do with the law? Where does it go? Right? you got to do something with the law. The law, as it exists, as God says, this is right and that's wrong. This is how you ought to live. And if we're going to say anything about being God's people, that's what we are if we proclaim to be Christians. If we're going to say something about being God's people, it ought to be that we abide by his word. Right? And so this question of what we do with the law uh, becomes of paramount importance. And so uh, we just read the text for the morning. That's Acts chapter 15, verse 12 through 20. If you open your Bibles there this morning, we'll be walking through that. But essentially, the second scripture that you heard was out of Galatians, and it said that the law is pretty much powerless. It's inept to do what we need it to do. And so the question is, what happens to it, and where does it go in our lives? If this is the picture of our lives that's created, the question of, in what place can you set the law so that it doesn't prevent one of these other things from being true, or doesn't block them out, so to speak. And so, the question this morning is, where does it go? Where does the law go? And the problem is, pretty much anywhere you set it right now, it's going gonna, it's gonna to block out something that we say should characterize our lives as Christians, right? And so the question I want to settle for us this morning is, where does this belong? Where does that belong? So let's pray, and we'll ask God to help us. Father, I pray this morning that you would um, use our time in the word, um, that you would bless it and make it fruitful. God, I um, come uh, humbly and timid this morning that you would um, keep me from error, that you would um, use this time to encourage us, but you would also use it to shape us, encourage us towards walking in fruitfulness and righteousness, that we can be um, all of the things that we know that you've called us to. But Father, keep us from dead legalism. Keep us from trusting in the works of our hands. Keep us from trusting and looking to the law. So God, I ask that you would do what we need to make any of these requests true, that you would provide us with your spirit and life, that we can receive what's true from you. This morning, by your word, so I ask that you would give us hearts born of the Spirit, made of flesh, that desire you, minds that can rightly discern truth from air, eyes to behold your glory and beauty, 
and ears to hear your word as sweet and good. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. And the question on the front end would be, where does this go? And the problem is, if you put it on the front end, there's nothing left. It's just this. It's just law. It's just law up front, and there's nothing else. And thereby blocking out all other life that you would see. Now, I'm going to assert that that's true, and then I'm going to prove it by the text. So let's go to verse 12 of the text this morning. Picking up where we left off, it says, And all the assembly had fallen silent. That is, in the midst of the gathering of the elders and the, and, uh, the, the, the church and the apostles there and in uh, Jerusalem, they're having this discussion about circumcision and the place of the law in the lives of these Gentile believers. And so all the assembly had fallen silent after Peter had spoken. And they listened then to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And they finished, as they finished, excuse me, after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, Simeon has related to us how God first uh, visited the Gentiles to take from them a people from his name. Emphasis here is on how he first came because however it was initiated, however it was inaugurated is the setting of the standard. And so this jogs us back to the need to look at last week. The key moment of last week is Peter's assertion about two different pieces. First in verse eight, he says, God who knows the heart bore witness to them. If you want to think about it like this, the word to there is talking about for them. God showed up by the Holy Spirit and he is basically giving his his, uh, his clout, his integrity to the fact that these, this is true, this is real. So he bore witness for them, if you want to think about it that way, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he's saying that happened for us at Pentecost, and he did it for them the same way, and that's how he bore witness. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So what Peter essentially has done is, is married the fact that it's just faith, They hadn't received circumcision. They hadn't received the law. There was nothing preceding that. And so the fact that God first uh, visited the Gentiles by giving his Holy Spirit before any of those things says that that's the initiating value, not law. So you, you can't get in by the law. The law wasn't the way in. And so that's essentially what Peter's saying. He's saying faith is the way in. And so Peter's conclusion is that requiring the law or circumcision that would uh, then lead to obedience in the law would be out of order. If God gave witness for himself to them by the Holy Spirit that the Gentiles are his people, then this is the foundation of the gospel, right? That whether you're Jew or Gentile, this is a search, and he didn't make any distinction between us and them. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, you are saved the same way, by grace through faith. Now that's very basic to us. We get that. That's straight out of the gate. We're saved by grace through faith, but there's a question about this. Now, therefore, why are you putting to God the test, or why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that they will be saved through the grace of, uh, of the Lord Jesus just as we will. So there is the affirmation. It's faith, and we're going to be saved just as they will. So he's marrying everyone together, and an applied extension of this thought or this statement is, we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus as they will, and not by the law. And not by the law. That's the implied extension there. It's just not put in there. And that's why I said there's something in the text that we have to address, even though he doesn't go on to expound about the law here. So, here's, here's the 
um, principle of the morning, okay? I'm going to beat it into you, and by the end, you're going to believe it. If by grace, not by law. Say it out loud. If by grace, these are mutually, you can't have one and hope for the other. If by grace, not by law. So what's going to happen now in the text is that James is responding to Peter's assertion that this is true, that they're saved by grace through faith. Everybody's the same in this. And he's going on to talk about how um, the prophets had prophesied that this would be the case, that the Gentiles would come in, that God would take a people for his own name out of all of the entire scope of the world, all the nations. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. That's an important phrase there. Called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. So he's uh, talking about the rebuilding of the house, the tent of David. And we'll get into more of this uh, tabernacle and, and house language next week. But essentially, I want you to key in on the phrase that James says, it's, it's by them being called by his name. And what we know about being called by his name is that's both the, the, the call to, to come, you're invited to come, but also being literally holding or bearing God's name, to be called by his own name. And in Romans 8, we have what's called uh, the chain of redemption, which goes exactly like this, that those who are predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so the connection to being called is connected all the way down the line to being justified. That's to, to, be, to be made right, to have your reconciliation of, the, of your account with God. And those whom he d- has done that to, he's also not anticipating, not hopefully in the future, but he has also done this. He has glorified them. So the essential, the arrival point is already established in the calling. So those who are called are justified. Those who are justified are glorified. That's an unbreakable chain. So justification and glorification are attached. The beginning and the end are already written. If we're justified by grace, if we can't get in through the law, and the end's already written, and the end is attached to the beginning, then this this is not your way to complete the journey either. Right? It can't go at the beginning, and it also doesn't keep you at the end. It won't get you to glorification. And so this is still bearing a question then. So what do we do with this law? What happens with this law? If it doesn't go at the beginning, and we can't bring it around at the end, as though we pass through the initial point of justification, and then we bring the law in. And that's really sort of what's being asserted here, and what gets asserted a lot of times in Christianity. Well, James goes on to say, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Don't put any barrier in their way. Why would you put this stumbling block in their way? As Peter already said, why would you test God with a yoke that we have not been able to bear? And not just us, but all of our fathers before us could not do this. And the Gentiles are turning. That's just, again, long form. Think about it as repentance. Anytime you hear that word being saying, they're turning from sin to God. So importantly, notice they're not turning from sin to law. They're not turning from sin to God and then to the law. It's from sin to God. They put their faith in what they're turning towards. So from self to Christ. And repentance is not brought on then by the law, nor was the law the object of the thing that you turn to. You don't turn your eyes 
from yourself to law. You turn your eyes from yourself to Christ. And you look upon that which brings uh, reconciliation. So um, James says, why are, we, why are we troubling them? Why are we putting something in their way when they're clearly turning to God in repentance? This is exactly what was called for. In verse 20, he says, but we should write them then to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. And then he comes out with this, last, this list. And so we think that maybe this is a lesser kind of list. This is not the law. This isn't the law. It's just the law, right? It's not the law, like 613 laws. It's just the law. And this is just like a short list that if we can do these things, then we're keeping, keeping the law, right? Is that what this list is? Is that what he's asking for? Well, he says, after this, he says, from ancient generations, this is verse 21, it wasn't in your notes this morning, but from ancient generations, Moses has been uh, read in every city, who, who, oh, excuse me, every synagogue, who proclaim him, and he's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So here's a connection about what's being um, proclaimed, what's, what's being taught in conjunction with the fact that there's this short little list. And so the question is, what do we make of this list? Because it feels like it's law, but like smaller law. And so again, the question is still here. If it's not at the beginning, and it's not somehow at the end, and we still have a smaller version of the law, how do we fix that? Well, Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28. Come to me, all who labor and who are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What do you suppose Jesus' invitation means? When he says, if, you're, if your soul is tired and weary from carrying a weight, I'm inviting you to something that's easy. I'm trying to get you to, 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 to put that load down and come to something else. And we hear that. We hear this is a yoke that you can't bear. That's what Peter said. And James says, why are you putting a, a stumbling block in front of them? Why are, we, why are we troubling them with this? We hear this invitation, and we think what Jesus means is he's going to make the burden manageable. He's, he wants us to come alongside of him, and it's, it's almost like one of those um, photo ops where you stick your head through, the, you know, you stick your head through the, the board, and there's something painted on the front, and they take a picture, and it looks like you're doing something you're not doing. And it's almost like that. Like Jesus comes and says, hey, take my yoke on you. And you kind of shoulder up under the yoke. And we snap a picture. And it looks like you're carrying a burden. But if the weight was really on your shoulders, you are not going to move. That's the truth about the yoke that Jesus is talking about. So what's the yoke? Well, the yoke is the law. And the heavy burden that it's dragging behind it is sin. Because all the law can do is drudge up sin and point out sin and tell you, how much you don't line up with the law. And so the question is, do you believe that Jesus' invitation is genuine? Come, I have a light burden. I need you to yoke up under me. And if you do believe that, do you live in accordance with that? And I bet you the truth is that you don't. You think there's some sort of like lesser yoke. There's a smaller law. There's a shorter list. If you, even if you went with that alternative, the list that James gives doesn't prohibit murdering people. So are we okay with holding the smaller list, but murder's fine with everybody? Like there's a lot of things that aren't on James's little list here in the letter. So if that's sort of the summation of the law, we're like in deep trouble. That you could call yourself 
a Christian and forgiven and belong to the church so long as you don't eat meat, sacrifice to idols and things that are strangled, right? And abstain from sexual immorality. But everything else is on the table, guys. That can't possibly mean the law. That can't mean, uh, that can't be the, the yoke that Jesus is inviting us to. We try to live with, 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 with finding this silly balance where we think there's some of the law that we can carry, that we're invited because of, because of salvation, because of forgiveness. Now you need to be, be, be invited to, to yoke up under this thing, and now you can bear it. And the truth is you didn't bear it before. It didn't get you in. It's not going to sustain you through it. So why would you think that you can yoke up under it now? We say, well, I don't really think that. Yes, but do you live that way? So you don't really understand the exasperating truth of the law. There's a futility that it's married to. And it's for that exact reason that the law must be taken care of. It must be set aside. It must be dealt with. And then it must take a place in our lives. James, the very James, who said, let's not trouble the Gentiles, who made this little short list. We'll deal with what that means next week. He says in his epistle, James, in chapter 2, he says, look, if you, if you fail in one small point of the law, you're liable for the whole thing. You're, you, you mess up one part of it, and, and you messed up the whole thing. So why would we think that we can take on part of the law when it's, when it's a, a, a complete unit? It's all or nothing. These are not a, a starter set of rules. These are not like an initiation. Once you guys get these down, then we'll move on to some other graduated things, you know. Don't go to R-rated movies, that kind of stuff, right? Then you'll be all get the Christian law, right? Do you think there's a Christian law? I don't know. Okay, well, let's talk about that. The law itself is good. The law is not the problem. The law in itself is perfect. It's righteous. It's holy. There's nothing wrong with it but there's something wrong with us. Romans 8, 3 says, the problem with the law is us, the flesh, the weakness that we have. And no matter what we do, whenever we read the law, it actually incites, it says it, it, like, uh, it incites sin in our members. It provokes it out of us. And so we're unable to keep it. We're unable to uphold it. We're unable to bear it. The law is futile and crushing because of us, because of our, our flesh is the word. It's used by Paul. And remember, going back to last week, that most false beliefs and most false teaching is tied to a false confidence in the flesh. A confidence that you can carry this weight, that you can accomplish at least some of the law and Jesus will meet you somewhere halfway. That we wink at each other as we're pulling this yoke of the law where Jesus is really carrying everything, but you get to say that you're carrying it. That's not the scenario. That teaching is rooted in a false confidence in the flesh. The law cannot, in and of itself, make you righteous. It cannot justify you. It cannot make you good. It's like a speed limit sign. It tells you what the standard is, but it cannot make the standard true. It's just in you whether or not you can or cannot abide by that. And once you've broken that law, there's nothing to remedy that situation. You've either met the standard or you didn't. The law exposes the weakness in us. It exposes sin. It increases sin. It provokes sin. The law is also said to restrain us, though. It's a teacher. It's a, it's a guide for us. It tells us what the righteous standards of God are. The law reveals sin, but it condemns us in doing so. It says, this is what sin is. And as soon as you find out what that is, you find out, that's me. I'm sin. 
It shuts us up by doing that. That's Paul's word, not mine. I'm not saying shut up, right? It, says, it, it leaves you with no response because you know that it condemns you justly. So it holds everyone accountable to God's perfect standard. What it cannot do is reduce sin. It cannot remedy sin, and it cannot give righteousness. So the question remains, where does it go? The law is meant to make us feel the great need for a Savior. Romans 10.4 says, For Christ is the end of the law. He is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. There's, there's nothing that you can do working for and from the law that will cause you to be like, I hit it. I did the mark. I at least got a D plus. I didn't fail. I'm just above failing, and therefore I pass the test. By no work of the law can we be justified in God's sight. Because through the law comes knowledge of sin. But since, oh, excuse me, verse 21, but now by righteousness, but now the righteousness of God has manifested apart from the law. He says separate from this. Since that can't justify you, it can't give you anything. All it can do is reveal sin now. Apart from that, separate from this, righteousness has manifested and it was spoken of through the law and the prophets. They bear witness to it. Again, if by grace, not by law. It manifested as Christ showed up. When he shows up, he puts away, he, is the, he represents the end of the law. That's what that Romans 10 passage, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for those that believe, for those that have faith, for those that would receive grace. That's the end of the law. Now, how does that happen? Because in Matthew 5, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. You guys wanted iota, but that's not how it's said. It's iota. Listen, Jesus just reaffirmed the law. It won't go away, but he also said, I've come not to throw it away, not to throw it down, not to break it, not to set it aside as though it did not matter, but actually to fulfill it. Now, I want you to key on the fact that he said, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. And what Paul said in his passage in Romans 3 is that, that the law and the prophets had spoken of this righteousness that would appear apart from the law. And this inclusion of the prophets prevents the misunderstanding of what many people think Jesus means here. Because if this statement means that the law will abide forever in the same way it has always abided forever, that means there's no hope. It's actually a statement of condemnation. If the law is the same as it always was, in the same way to us, all it can do is condemn. It cannot justify, cannot provide righteousness. And if Jesus says, it won't pass away, I've come to affirm it, then that's a statement of condemnation. But because he includes the word prophets, we need to think about this differently. If every law is still in place in the same way, if that's what Jesus means by it, then we're condemned. But if you try to take that same understanding and apply it to or prophets, does that make sense? Is Jesus saying here, the law applies the same way it always is applied, in the same standard, 
And I'm not going to change anything about how that works. I've come to fulfill it or affirm it, confirm it. That's what some people interpret this to mean. Now, ask that, could that work if you said the same thing about the prophets? I've come to not throw down the prophets, but to confirm them, even in their smallest detail, that in the same way they've always applied, they will still apply, so that you must look forward to their fulfillment. Well, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't work in both statements, but he's married the two together, the law and the prophets. They won't, I didn't come to throw them down. I didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And what's more is that Jesus magnified the law even more than what it already was. The impossible application of it in the Sermon on the Mount is, you've heard it said, do not murder. I say, if you're angry with somebody or you call them fool, it's the same as murder. So he took the impossible application of law, heightened it, and raised the standard at the same time, putting it way beyond our reach. But he said, I didn't come to abolish them. I didn't come to throw them down, but to fulfill them. So what essentially are we asking? What is, what is Jesus telling us? What is he trying to point out? Well, he's saying I'm the fulfillment of it in what sense? Well, if you remember before Jesus is crucified, he says in Luke chapter 24, Jesus told them everything written about me and the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he told them about how he's going to suffer and they didn't get it. And then later on at the end of Luke, after he's crucified and he's resurrected. It says, then they understood what was written and why he had said what he had said. In Acts, we're told that he used his time before the ascension to open the, the apostles' mind to the scriptures, to see him as the fulfillment in all of them. When Jesus is resurrected and he's walking with the two men on the road, they don't recognize him. It says he opens their mind to recognize and see about him in all of the law and all the prophets, how everything was written about him. So there are only two ways that the demands of the law, the need of the law, can be fixed. There's two options. It can be thrown down, set aside, cast away, and broken, or it can be fulfilled. It can meet its end purpose. It can be satisfied, and therefore there's no need for it to be abolished it's been satisfied. It's been fulfilled in that sense. So Jesus came as a man born under the law means that he's bound by all of its blessings and curses the same way that you are. That's why it's so important that Jesus was actually a human being. He's just like us. He knows our weaknesses, our frame. He came to be under the law so that he could set us free from the law. Jesus purchased us from under the law by becoming like us and fulfilling all of the righteous standards that we could not. Jesus purchased us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. So he, he fulfilled all of it. He did, fulfilled the righteous demands of it so that it could be fulfilled without being thrown aside. But he also took the punishment that was reserved for those that were uh, not, not able to fulfill it. So if Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. End here is not, a, is not a chronological statement about end. It's not a, it's not a that's the, the, the cliff, that, and after that, there's nothing else. End means something like the purpose of it. 1159 is the end of the day. Saturday is the end of the week. December 31st is the end of the year. Those are all chronological, arbitrary termination points. That's one way to use the word end. But here's another way. The house is at the end of the path right? My degree is at the end 
of my taking classes, right? And once you are in the house, and once you receive the degree, the thing leading up to it doesn't serve its purpose anymore. The end point has been realized. The goal of it, its purpose, is to lead you to a, an end point, to get into a conclusion, to get inside the house. The path doesn't remain in the house, does it? No, you get to the end, and you go inside the house, and once in the house, the path is not necessary anymore, but it's fulfilled its purpose. That's the end point. That's the purpose of it. When you have your degree, you don't go back to 101 and start taking the same courses again. They've served their purpose and helped you to arrive at the the substance of it. The Greek word here is the telos, which we get the word, we we use it like the teleology, which means like the very basic um, purpose of anything. What is is its meaning? Why does it exist? So these statements point to a truth about function and purpose, not termination. So when it says Christ is the end of the law, it's not saying that's the cliff after which the law doesn't exist anymore. It says the end of the law is though it was always leading up to him. And that's why the law and the prophets spoke of him because it's a revelation of the need for a savior and the means of salvation. Christ is both. Jesus isn't an arbitrary end of the law. He is the meaning of the law. So it doesn't fit when you ask, where does this fit in terms of my life of faith? The law for believers would essentially be doing this. It's exchanging condemnation from the law, saying, you know, the wages of sin are death because of the law. The law defining sin and all the stuff that I do, that's, that's total condemnation. But, you know, in Christ or salvation, and then I adopt the law again, it's out of the frying pan and into the fire. You're back into condemnation. There's no room for it. By no law will man be declared justified or righteous. So we're under grace, not law. We walk by faith. If you take a summary of the argument, the the, the real truth is that law has no place in the life of the believer. Now here's your objection. We're all going to be lawless. Right? Doesn't that lead to anarchy and chaos? What do we do instead? That's the question I don't get to answer fully this week. <laughs> but it's, we're going somewhere with it. If you take the summary of the arguments, law has no place in, in terms of faith. It's, it's actually presented as the alternative to it. It's either law or faith. It's either law or grace. If by grace, then not by law. Right? You weren't convinced yet, but I got a few more chances to beat it into you. Galatians 3. Oh, wait. Nope. You got to say it. If by grace. <laughs> okay. Galatians 3, 11. Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law. No one is justified by, uh, before God by the law, but the righteous will live by faith. That's that's the presentation of faith as the alternative. The law, however, is not based on faith. Why? Because if you're looking for this to tell you whether or not you're justified or righteous, it's going to say no. The law will always condemn you. That's all it can do. You see that? So anytime you look to it, you're going to get the same answer. The righteous will live by, by faith. The law, however, is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Well, if you do those things, you could live, but you don't do those things. Am I wrong? No, we don't do those things. So here's the resolution I have for this morning. 
We're told that it's by faith that we walk. It's by faith that we live. And so the contrast here is the question of what are you, what are you looking to? What are you trusting in? And it's not law. By faith and by the Spirit, we trust Jesus for his obedience, for, for, for our justification. We're not trusting in the fact that we are getting winked at for meeting the standard. It's that Jesus already met the standard. He really did it. And therefore, we are actually completing the law by trusting in Jesus' completion of the law. In essence, here's what's happening. It's not a question of whether or not there's a place in the life of a believer for, for the law. It's that Jesus fulfilled it. He is the end of it. He is the meaning of it. So that the fulfillment of it is the way that it's still in your life. And you're led by the Spirit, not by the law. In Christ, everything that we think of as part of the law, not just the Ten Commandments, every aspect of the law is answered in Christ. There is no more priesthood in all the demands of the holiness code because Jesus is our high priest and we are a priest. There's no more need for sacrifices because Jesus is our sacrifice. There's no more temple that we have to go to to worship God because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if you can look anywhere in the Old Testament and find something that Jesus is not the fulfillment of, then we're in trouble. The truth is that Jesus is the meaning of all of this. So this truth rises that immediate objection. Well, wait, 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 wait. Without the law, aren't we going to go into total chaos? Paul anticipates this exact objection in Romans chapter 6 through 8. Just write them down, read them this week. It's good for your soul, okay? Because he has this struggle, knowing that we have this problem in the flesh and that whenever our flesh looks at the law, it says, I'm guilty, why, why can't I do the things I want to do? I want to, be, I want to do the right things. That's a good, right inclination. But I find that I'm messed up. And all the stuff I want to do, I can't do. And then I find the very things I don't want to do, I'm doing them. Right? That's Romans 7. Just read that as an encouragement that Paul, the one that's telling us that the law has no place in us, tells us also that the law has a place for us, that it is doing something in us. So the question of, if grace is good and grace is by faith, well, maybe we should keep sinning that we could have more grace, that grace might abound. He asked this question in Romans 6, 1. And he says, by no means. He said, God forbid. It says there's no stronger way to say no. He's, he's screaming it off the page. No. So the answer is no, we don't continue in sin. It doesn't just go into utter, utter, utter lawlessness. And he jumps down in verses 14 and 15, and he's going to repeat the same statement twice. For sin will have no dominion over you dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. You're not under the law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? And again, he uses the same prohibition. No, it's impossible. Can't do it. But then he goes on just after this, Romans 7, and he goes on to have this that schizophrenic debate. Well, why am I doing things I want to do? And the truth is in the struggle. You are born again, a new creation with all of the righteousness of Christ. In faith, by grace, that cannot be tainted. It is not tainted. Your spiritual life is as clean as it will ever be. And that's why sanctification and glorification is already married to justification. You have a new spiritual birth that exists. The problem is you're dragging around the old you. 
and that's your condition for now. And so he says the problem, the, the, the resolution in Romans 7, he says like, who will deliver me from this body of sin? And what he means there, he's been talking about this, this, his members and the flesh, right? A false confidence in the flesh, the idea that you can fulfill the law. He's, that's the war. And he says, I want to do the right things. The, the God in me, the spirit in me wants to do the right things. But every time I, I think about the, the wrong things or the law, I'm doing those wrong things. And so he says, who will deliver me from this body of sin? There's a punishment that existed in Rome at this time. And it was especially cruel. Where if you were found guilty of murdering somebody, they would shackle you hand to hand, and foot to foot, and face to face with the dead body of the person you murdered. And as that person decayed and rotted, that person decayed and rotted you. And that was your punishment. And that's the term that Paul's using. Who's going to deliver me from this body of sin that I'm dragging around? It's just full of death. And all it does is death. But I do have a good in me. I have a righteousness in me, and I'm doing my best to follow that. And he contrasts that. The whole resolution on it is that Jesus delivers us. And then he goes on in Romans 8 to talk about walking by the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit. Walking in my spiritual life. Following God and the Holy Spirit. And yes, I'm going to find times. And so the question, he says, is will, will the spiritual life reign in your life or will death reign? Will you manifest what's, what's still physically true or will you manifest what is should be spiritually true of you and you don't get that answer by going back to the law because every time you go to the law you're going to be manifesting the flesh thing and so we think on the things that are above we set our mind on christ and that way we follow him galatians 5 1 through 5 i believe i'm going to go through and this will be our conclusion for this morning it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Jesus' invitation was not to come to the yoke of slavery. It's to the yoke of freedom. Get out from under the law. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be no advantage to you. He says he's, he's worthless if you're going to go back to the law. Because he set you free from it. He's the fulfillment of it. If you go back to it, it's like he never existed. He should have never come and sacrificed if you're going to do that. I testify again that every man who accepts circumcision, he is obligated to keep the whole law. And that's why this is so important. They came down. They're teaching them in Antioch. You guys got to be circumcised if you want to be saved. And the implication thereof is that circumcision leads to keeping the law. So he says, if you do that, you're obligated to keep the whole law and you are then cut off or severed from Christ. You would be, uh, you who would be justified by the law. That's sarcasm. You will not be justified by the law. You are severed from Christ. You would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. If by grace, not by law. For through the Holy Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. It's all, it's just all right there in the last verse, right? By, by the Spirit, by our spiritual life, in the Spirit, for the Spirit, granted to us by God's Spirit, who inhabits us by His Spirit. So we wait for the hope of, of righteousness that it brings in us. So we think sinning or not sinning is not bearing out what's always true. 
You are what you are by nature. You are what you are by birth, not by behavior always. Sometimes behavior, sometimes you behave like something you're not. Sometimes you behave in a way you ought not to, but that doesn't change what you are. That's why I I tried to tell you last week, grace can't be abused when it's been genuinely received. Because it's, it's already paid. It's already washed your sins, past, present, future. So there's no abuse of it if, it's, if, the, if the spiritual life is true, if the spiritual life is really there. So sinning and not sinning is not necessarily a manifestation of your nature. It's just your behavior. Christian, Christ is in you and therefore you are already perfectly sinless and righteous. That's not blasphemy. It's just true. But you carry around a body of death and sin. And that's the struggle. That's the wrestle. Sinning less, right, is not a measurement about how much of the law we can or should keep. That's not, that's not the question. It's are we walking in faith by the Spirit? We are not always a perfect reflection of righteousness. We are a reflection of righteousness by faith. So if you're, if you're thinking, I sin and now I'm not a good reflection of following the law. No. If you sin and you look to Christ knowing that he's fulfilled the law, that's a reflection of perfect righteousness. Because you're not trusting in your righteousness. You're trusting in his righteousness that's given to you. It's an alien righteousness. It's a foreign righteousness. Your sinning or not sinning does not affect that. It's Christ and he's given it to you. That's what we have in the new birth. So we're not called to this old standard to look to that, to say, am am I, am I right with God? Do I have righteousness? Am I justified? Look to Christ, who is the meaning of all of those things. Let's pray. Father, I pray.